Welcome to Journey to Esquire, the podcast. I'm Jocelyn Hardrick, founder and president of Diversity Access Pipeline, Inc., the company behind this podcast and other great programs like Journey to Esquire Scholarship and Leadership Program, which provides $2,000 cash scholarships to third-year law students and internships to second-year law students, along with leadership training and mentors. And Journey to Esquire, the blog, which provides insightful articles to help navigate you through law school and beyond. Find out more on our website, www.journeytoesquire.com. Hi, it's Jocelyn Hardrick, and this is Journey to Esquire, the podcast. I'm the founder and uh, director of Journey to Esquire, scholarship and leadership program, the blog, the podcast, and all the great resources that we offer. Today, we pass the mic to Dr. Annette V. Clark. And she is going to talk about her journey to PhD <laughs> and offer some tips about resilience and what lawyers and law students can do now to help build resilience. So rather than do a formal introduction of Dr. Clark, I am going to just ask her to tell us a little bit about herself and why she decided to become a um, PhD. And then we'll talk about your journey there. Hello, Dr. Annette Vanessa Clark. Hello. <laughs> Welcome in. Hello, hello, hello. Glad to be here. Glad to be with you. Well, thanks for joining us. I'm so excited to have you talk about resilience um, coming out of COVID. Whew, we have a lot to deal with yes. going through that and now trying to figure out the new normal. But before we get mm-hmm. to all that, um, I'll let the audience know we're, we're good friends since middle school. Yes. And- <laughs> friend, yes. Uh huh. Built the School for the Gifted and Talented in okay. Brooklyn, New York. <laughs> and um, I remember you saying when we were that young that you were going to be a doctor, not a medical doctor, a PhD doctor. So what <laughs> what made you interested in getting your PhD? Huh. Okay. Well, you know, it, it's kind of sketchy in my mind. It's so it's funny that you mentioned that you remember <laughs> like pre high school. Um, you know. Growing up, one one thing that I can think of growing up was watching Star Trek The Next Generation, right? I'm a huge Trekkie, you know, pick up any Trekkies out there. <laughs> and I um, really loved the character of Counselor Deanna Troy. I loved what she did, what she, what she, the role she played on the Enterprise, you know, she, of course, you know, it's a, it's a science fiction show. So she had, you know, empathic, you know, telepathic abilities. And one thing that I, I just loved watching her and how she, she moved. She helped people to feel better. She supported the captain. She supported the crew. And so that was um, an early kind of look into the kind of thing that I was like, oh, I like that. I, I think I want to do that. Um then in high school, um, we went to uh, Brooklyn Technical High School, and in high school we had majors, and so we were both in the technology and liberal arts major, and they offered a um, an AP class in psychology, mm-hmm. and um, I loved that class. I I, w- I chose that major specifically to take that class. And so I was really um, excited to take it and really just enjoyed it so much. And so from there, I was like, oh, you know what? I want to be a psychologist. Um, so, you know, I go ahead. I, I, I went to NYU for my undergraduate 
um, degree and and in psychology and you know psychology is usually a very huge major everyone starts out there everyone's in psych 101 um, not everyone sustains because they realize oh it's harder than I thought um, and so we get, we get quite a bit of a attrition after psych 101 um, but I stuck with it and I got my my degree but shortly I want to say maybe junior year I started, you know, just kind of having doubts. Um, and I was like, well, maybe I don't want to be a psychologist. Maybe I want to be a lawyer and, or maybe I want to be a social worker. And at the time, NYU um, had a joint degree program between the School of Law and the um, School of Social Work. They had an MSWJD um, option. So I was like, oh, this sounds really interesting. You know, let me look into that. And, you know, I was looking into it and I had to be honest with myself in that moment. <laughs> um, I said, you know, self, um, you probably might, you know, might, you might get into the, you know, social work school, but are you going to get into NYU law? And I had to be honest with self and say, oh, that's looking a little shaky, right? <laughs> because, you know, they don't actually take a lot of undergrads um, um, into their law program. Um, and my grades were, grades were okay, but they weren't, you know, I, I think that they, they, I just wasn't competitive enough to be considered for NYU law. So I had to be realistic. That's the first time I've heard that story. I don't think you've shared that with me before. I didn't know you were even thinking about going to law school. You must've been like, let me not it was a hot second. I think my mother told me that my, my father, who passed away when I was um, three years old, had wanted me to be a, a lawyer. Um, but yeah, it was it was a, a passing, fleeting <laughs> moment. Um, well, and I, you know, I considered it. And so um, it was, you know, because my, my initial plan was go to go directly into my doctorate after finishing NYU. And that's just not where life took me. And so... Um, you know, I didn't know it at the time, but there would be so much value in what I did between that time and the time that I actually started my PhD. And that would be a 10 year span between, um, between undergrad and starting my doctoral program. So, and in between I went, you know, had, had a, a master's degree. I took the, the scenic route through that one. Um, <laughs> but, um, what, what I wind up doing after that moment of truth with self, I was like, well, you know what? I think I'm just going to, I'm going to complete my degree. And I think I want to check out what social services is like. And so I, I, you know, it was a little difficult at right after um, college trying to find a job. And so, I, you know, I didn't have a job for a few months. And, um, you know, I got involved with um, financial services because, you know, I just was like, oh, I need to figure out how to how to deal with money. And, um, you know, you were you were um, involved with, you know, at the time, Primerica, and we started doing that together. And, um, you know, that wasn't we worked at Chase. <laughs> <laughs> we later worked at Chase. So, um, but in between Chase, I started working at Covenant House, um, New York, which is a homeless shelter for youth under 21. And, and I worked there too. I followed yeah. you there. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, oh, you, did you follow me there? <laughs> Were we there at the same time? I feel like something, because I can't remember if it was you first or if I was first, but we seem to be following <laughs> yes. the past for a we while. Like. Path, right? mm -hmm. So I wound up there and um, 
I, I, I love doing the work. I loved helping kids. It was, you know, really interesting to see, um, you know, that most of the kids that were there were not really homeless or runaways, as I assumed. But it was just a really a lot of family conflict. And that would become a lot really important later on in, in my career. A lot of family conflict, um, you know, led to kids being kicked out or running away or, you know, leaving and winding up in the shelter. Um, but it was very low paying job and it was very stressful. And I, in my heart, believe that um, there were times where, you know, the, the situation got really tense. The atmosphere was super tense at work that, you know, they made people want to leave. Um, and, you know, so that that was Covenant House. So I jumped from that to being a personal banker. Um, I had the, I had, you know, was my licenses and was able to, you know, take the side gig doing financial services and make it into um, uh, a full time job. And so I started working at um, Chase as a banker. And what I loved, I, they put me in Harlem at um, uh, a bank where a branch where most of the people were um, elderly and they wouldn't really do much with their money. And so I really, I think what I really, I didn't, I could care less about selling people annuities and, 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 and mutual funds. I could care less about that. Um, I really just loved helping people feel better about their money. And I realized that's psychology. It's psychology. And so, you know, I, I really, I, it, it just was not the, the place and space for me. And, you know, divinely, I was not um, there anymore. And I decided, okay, well, I still need a job. Let me go do something else. And I, I, I went on to be a counselor at a transfer high school. And that was really rewarding, you know, kind of helping support kids who, you know, had fallen below, between the cracks and um, needed to, um, you know, needed needed help getting back on track and, and being able to graduate. And it was just interesting to see how there's so many different pathways to graduation. So I was their counselor and it was really, it was really rewarding. Graduation time was like really wonderful. And it, you know, after the difficult year in getting kids to get to school and, um, you know, it just so happened that I was, uh, I was released from, from that job and I just sat there. I was like, you know what? I want to be a psychologist. And I just put my energy towards applying for that. So while I was actually, while I was working as a counselor, I started doing um, a master's in psychology at the new school for social research. And, um, you know, I went into that and I was like, you know, I already have a, I already have a general degree in, in psychology. Let me have a concentration in something. And so I did a concentration in substance use and, um, mental health counseling there and was able to do some internships. Um, I did an internship at, um, uh, Beth Israel detoxi detoxification. And then on the side, I did a year working at a community based program. Um, outpatient program for people with severe mental illness at Columbia. It was a Columbia University trustees program at the time that was affiliated with Harlem Hospital. And, you know, just kind of really enjoyed the work there, engaging with people. I used, you know, skills that I didn't think I would use in the same capacity. I was crocheting with people. Um, <laughs> and 
you know, in the interim, I was just kind of building that skill and building up, you know, um, a, a resume that would look really great when I um, applied. And then I happened to apply and I applied twice. You know, the first time, not not the best applications went out and too few went out. And the second time I was really serious about it. And so I put in um, that effort and, and was able to start my program. And I started at the age, I'm going to say the age of 32. Um, and so that was a good 10 year span in between. And so it's interesting that I, you know, I, while I had started doing um, a master's degree um, a couple years before, about four years before, I, you know, I had gotten sick in the middle of it um, and couldn't, I had to take a, a bunch of um, incompletes, but you know what? I kept going. Um, something that I always, you know, I've always had this thing where I, I'm, my favorite words are persistence and determination. And so I was determined to finish. It took me a while. I took the scenic route. Um, but guess what? It kind of overlapped with my doctorate um, in the first, like, uh, the first semester. Um, so I kind of gotten that on the way as well as the doctorate <laughs> and getting another master's degree on the way. So, you know, I was just like, you know, I'm going to finish this. And, you know, I realized that some, you know, when you look back, some of the work that you do, you don't see how they connect, but you have to kind of draw the line um, for people. And, you know, I, I talk to students about this all the time that, in, you know, how does financial services and, you know, social services come together to make you a psychologist? Like, mm -hmm. <laughs> it was kind of weird, <laughs> you know? So um, you have to kind of draw the line for people and, um you know, that's how it, it, it wound up for me. And, you know, I wound up at a school I didn't actually think, it wasn't my top school, and I didn't think that I would um, go go to that school. I went to um, Palo Alto University, um, formerly, formerly the uh, Pacific Graduate School of um, Psychology, and it was a professional program, less, lesser known name. And I applied to, you know, other like bigger name universities. And you know what? It actually was the best program for me. You know, it came down to that school and another big name school. And in hindsight, if I had went to that big name school, I would not have been afforded many of the opportunities that I gotten um, coming to moving, picking up my life and moving to California and, um, you know, doing at this program. I got exposed to so many opportunities and I'm, you know, an extremely, extremely great program of intense, rigorous program. And in that sense, it really mirrors um, law school and entering law school. And it's so intense and no one told me. I thought it was, you know, I thought I was taking the easier route. Yes. You know? yes. I, 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 so yeah, students that I talk to are definitely in that boat. Yeah. And that's why I like, you know, um, our non-lawyer guests have been medical doctors, PhDs, that kind, because they understand the rigor. Now, yeah. I don't, I don't want to get into a battle of who's more rigorous. Is this a losing battle? But it's all rigorous. We can agree about that. So, briefly, what rigorous. is your PhD in? So, um, my PhD is in clinical psychology. Um, all of my degrees um, have been in psychology, and um, so the, I got a master's of science in clinical psychology and a PhD in clinical psychology, um, and I, with an emphasis in diversity and community mental health. Oh, good, because we're mm -hmm. a diversity program. So. Yes. <laughs> yes. That's, we always want to talk about. Very important part of my career, yeah. 
Yes. And then our first module is always lawyer wellness, where I mm -hmm. talk to the students about managing not just their time, but their emotions and their energy and how you have to be intentional. And so they're always so grateful. We always do it first because in the program, we're asking them to do a lot more than beyond their typical last year of law school, right? It's like, if you're going to add stuff, you really need to be paying attention. Mm -hmm. um, and I talk to a lot of students and I've been teaching three years. I get a lot of themes. Um, even, even today, someone mentioned this, you know, they get their first grade or their first few grades and it's not good and they're really ready to give up. They're crying. They're heartbroken and they're internalizing so much of this as personal rejection. Mm -hmm. So, um, and law students and lawyers have to deal with this. Mm -hmm. So since, you know, you're, you, you specialize in diversity and community and clinical psychology, you know, what are your tips you have for law students and lawyers and anyone in a rigorous academic setting, you know, like you said, the financial, there's the, it's expensive. You didn't mention this part, but we all know graduate school is expensive. I purposely don't mention that part. <laughs> <laughs> it's expensive. It's, it's expensive. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It can be isolating, right? A lot of people like yourself and, and me move yeah. to a whole different state just to be able to go to a school that accepted you. Absolutely. You know, that's a good fit. Mm -hmm. So let's, let's go into, you know, what are some tips that they can use? Well, I'll, I'll start first with, you know, what I did, right? You know, um, by the time I got to the doctorate and, you know, as I mentioned before, I took a, a detour in the scenic route, like I like to call it through my first master's degree. And um, what I, when I came to the program, I was super focused. I was super focused. I was super um, determined. Um, one of my, my favorite words, I was super determined. But what I found helped me, especially in that first year, is that at PAU, um, there were a number of different extracurricular talks that were was going on, like um, talks from all sorts of names, big names, small names here, there, everywhere. So I went to every talk, especially that first year, I went to every talk. And I found that by engaging in that extracurricular um, academic, um, uh, psych psychological world, right? Because the, the world, you know, of being a psychologist is bigger than the school work and being a lawyer is bigger than law school, right? And so what I found was tapping into um, the extracurricular stuff, the, the talks, the networks, the communities, the organizations, that was really important for me to continue to remember why I was doing what I was doing. Why was I spending all this money, this time up all night, you know, doing work, you know, and I found that that was something that really um, made a difference for me. And I, I encourage people to do that, to get involved um, with the extracurricular stuff, because when times get hard in school, that's going to be the thing that pushes you through, right? So that was one huge thing. And I think that that's a really important part of, you know, just kind of managing your stress, managing your anxiety, um, uh, the problems that might come up around school is by engaging with, with those people. Another thing I did is, you know, all the work that I handed in, it was as much as possible, it was something that I was deeply interested in. Um, you know, my dissertation was something that I was deeply interested in. It was about black immigrants and, and identity. And when it got tough, when I got sick of it, 
I was able to push through because it's something that I was deeply interested in. And, and I think that, you know, if you're able to do that as much as you're able to do that, then it, it's something that can push you through a program because you're doing things that you're, you're, you are interested in and you love to do. So that's just a little bit of, of, of what I've done. I think that, um, you know, there's tips that teachers can do and, you know, to some extent, I'm not sure how many are willing and I, I know that you probably are. And I love to hear that the first thing you talk to your students about is, um, you know, self-care and that sort of thing. And I think that um, as as teachers, we can be flexible, we can be understanding, we can promote an air of welcome um, you know, as a therapist, you know, our foundation is building relationships. And I found that that has helped me as a professor and in other facets of my life. It's about building relationships and connection. And um, it's important to um, be available to students and, and be welcoming to students and have them feel safe in coming to you, especially when they have a problem and to be flexible. Now, that doesn't mean don't hold them accountable or don't give rigor, you know, but I think that teachers can do that. Um, what students can do is students can remember, hey, it's 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 okay. It's going to be okay. It's not the end of the world. This one grade is not the end of the world. And you have to remember what your purpose is. Remember that you are here for a reason. And, you know, engaging in things outside reminds you of who you are as a person. Um, connecting with your family, who you are. You know, if, you know, they... they the advice that was given was, you know, if you were in a relationship, figure out, you know, are you going to stay together or are you not, you know, because this is not the time or place to have any drama <laughs> in relationships. Um, and I think what they can do is try to create balance as much as possible. Now, you know, you know, student life is not easy and you might end up doing things and at times where you're like, okay, why am I up at five o'clock in the morning, you know, doing this or doing that? But trying to create as much balance as possible, you know, connecting with, you know, the outside professional networks, but also your, your own communities, um, other students, um, you know, go go have a drink. You know, we my, my um, colleagues and I, we, we would go to the, the chilies across the street from the school after like a big test and we would we would drink, eat and be merry. that was the time and so it's important to kind of have those connections and um you know some people i I met in school i'm still in contact with um and those will be those those fellow students of yours will then be your colleagues and people that you can call on um when you're alone or when you need help and when you need support you need to network um so that's important to kind of just remember that you're building those relationships now in school from the start um so I think that that's something um, that you can really do. So I think one thing I always say to to people, especially my therapy clients, and it works it works across the board. Practice, right? You know, practice the art of self care, right? Practice taking a moment. Sometimes you know it's it's about switching your mind to thinking, you know, to being more flexible in your thinking, to being able to allow yourself to um, make a mistake and say, oh, you know what? That didn't work out this time. I'm going to do something else, right? It's a cha-cha, you know, one step back, you know, two step back, one step forward. You just keep moving. You just keep moving. So I tell people sometimes, you know, you want to try to develop those healthy habits. Obviously, you know, 
things like organization and time management, you know, would be really helpful to you. Um, but you know, you don't have to, to be perfect. And, you know, we know, I know that probably most law students are very high performing and probably perfectionistic. And, um, you know, sometimes when those people meet a challenge that they never encountered before or things have always been easy before, it may be really difficult for them to kind of manage. And I think it's important to remember that, you know, your story is not written. It's not how you start. It's how you finish. And mm -hmm. you got to you you have to like pivot sometimes, you know, one way is not working. You try another way and it's not the end of the world. And it, there's a way for you to. Um, you know, continue forward, right? And mm -hmm. sometimes you have to get creative about how you approach your education and career. You know, they can say what they want to say, but we're going <laughs> to, you, you have to be confident in yourself to be able to get to the next place. The, the common thing is, you know, the students now aren't as resilient or strong and they give up very easily. I don't want to over um, simplify the differences between mm -hmm. the generations, but they're, they're, I'm definitely experiencing it. I, you know, we're not that old. Right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> we graduated college 2002 and mm -hmm. I'm like, okay, how come the students graduating college now, they, they, you tell them it's going to be rigorous. And I've literally had students say, oh, I didn't believe that was going to be that hard. I know you said it a bunch of times. But mm -hmm. I just I'm, you know, I just, yeah. uh, not me. <laughs> I can totally identify with that. You know, after I, I changed my class to be as simple as possible, I thought I still am getting people that I'm like, ah, and I'm like, really? <laughs> but it's so interesting that you mentioned this. Just yesterday, I was in a training on um, multiple generations in the workplace. And it just got me thinking, I'm about to teach a, um, a lecture on aging and ageism. And it, you know, the generations are different, point blank, right? Um, and just understanding, I think being able to understand where millennials are coming from is going to be important. You know, even they're, they're different from, from Gen X and how they communicate in, um, uh, in how they, they, they approach problems. They're, they're very different. Um, they, you know, they're more about, you know, text, short. And I think that that actually, you know, not, not and I'm not saying this in a negative way, but, you know, our, you know, um, Gen Xers were the beginning of the, you know, tech savvy world. And then this, this generation, millennial generation, actually this generation, because there's Generation Z coming up. Um, now too, but the millennial generation are fully immersed in it. And I think that that has impacted how they interact and how they approach problems and how they approach solutions as, as you know, wanting more um, immediate satisfaction, um, maybe coming in with a lot more entitlement. Um, uh oh, and you said the E word. I said the E word. I said the E word. Um, and Okay, you know, don't, don't turn off the podcast, millennials. Okay, we're, we're, <laughs> we're the part where you learn how to communicate with with yeah. the rest of us. <laughs> and so, you know, I don't have it in front of me to tell you, but like I, you know, there there are some distinct differences, but there's also some real, you know, you know, it, there's also some real positive. And I think so. I think that it's a matter of understanding, you know, what 
what their upbringing was. Um, you know, I had to describe what a latchkey child was two times this week. <laughs> and people literally did not know what that was because they just had a different upbringing, right? And so I, be, I think being a latchkey child helped me to build resilience and to build, you know, um, you know, uh, a, a certain power of, you know, trying and doing in a way in which um, kids that grew up with helicopter parents had a, a different experience. So that's not to say that, you know, um, you know, it's a necessarily a terrible thing for millennials, but I think that um, things in things that we used to never focus on are being focused on now. Um, you know, being more relationship relational um, would help more. Um, and I think that the way in which um, the different generations seek relationships would are different as well. And so, yeah. So yeah. I think understanding the differences, understanding, you know, and working with that, right? You know, because um, there's plenty that um, previous generations, even before us, can can show to, to to newer generations. You know, it's not just, oh, my generation is better than yours or anything like that. But, you know, there is a way for um, us to, to work together. And so, you know, in the millennial generation, they are very outspoken. They are um, very involved and they're more aware of certain things that previous generations never spoke of, in particular things like mental health, um, uh, you know, speaking up for yourself, standing up for justice, um, that sort of thing. And so those are really important um, factors here that can play in to support, you know, supporting them in the classroom as well or, or through programs like this. And so I think that um, just that awareness that they bring is, a, is, is really important. And so it's important to listen to them. But I think it's also important that, you know, hey, these programs are not for the faint of heart. <laughs> yeah, these programs, yeah. yeah, these programs do take you to another level, and so it's it's important to to figure out that you know the program in, and your performance in the program is is a reflection of how well you're able to navigate the program a lot of times, and not a reflection of the kind of person that you are. You know, like a B doesn't mean you're a terrible person, or a C or D or whatever. It just means hey, I gotta try it again. Um, I'm gonna pivot. I'm gonna try a new strategy. I'm going to go talk to the professor, find out what I can do. Um, you know, I, and I think that that's, that's an important thing to, for students to be able to do is to come, is to not keep it in, but to talk and talk professionally to um, professors and in trying to navigate these programs. Um, another big issue I must mention, you know, obviously I'm a psychologist, is that, you know, sometimes when you're going through difficulty and law school, I'm sure is difficulty. <laughs> um, um, things that you may not have noticed before, if you had a predisposition to mental illness, it may rear its head now, it may act up now, and it may be important to plug in to um, the proper mental health support and treatment um, to be able to manage yourself. <laughs> to be able to manage yourself and to be able to um, manage in the program. So, you know, that could mean, you know, um, making sure to seek psychotherapy, seeking um, psychotropic medication as needed, um, as well as understanding, hey, do I need to take a break from school? Do I need to 
you know, talk to my professors. Um, what do I need to do to do to be able to get through this program? And I think that, you know, the the hard and fast, you know, you have to do four years of undergrad and you have to do this these three years here at, at law school and these two years in the masters or whatever. And it has to be, you know, this set five years for whatever. Um, it doesn't, it, you know, it's it's no longer about that. It's about, okay, well, how do I manage and how do I, I pave my own path? And if it takes you longer, then hey, it takes you longer. At the end of the day, you still get to that ultimate goal of, you know, whatever profession that you want to be in. That's excellent advice. Thank you so much, Dr. Clark, for joining us today and for giving us those steps to build up resilience, to reflect, to make, to practice self-care. That's great. Mm -hmm. Build community. And what we're going to do is we're going to share the resources, particularly for lawyers, especially um, in Florida. They get free access to therapy. Um, oh, wonderful. Yeah. Because, uh, you know, the, the bar recognizes that individuals and law students, law students get it as well, um, are dealing with some of the very things you mentioned. So it's great that they got to hear it from a PhD in clinical <laughs> psychology. Thank you so much, Dr. Clark, for joining us today. And make sure you share, like, and subscribe. And for more, go to journeytoesquire.com. Bye-bye. Thank you so much. Thanks for tuning in to another great episode of Journey to Esquire, the podcast. Support, share, subscribe. And for more, visit www.journeytoesquire.com.